You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of our McGuire Woods Across the Table podcast series. I'm Amber Walsh, chair of the McGuire Woods Healthcare Group, and my fellow host today is Jeff Cockrell, chair of our private equity industry team. We're joined today by Ryan Moore, a director at Alamoney and Barnes. We have known the AMB crew for quite a while. The AMB investment banking team focuses on M&A and capital formation transactions for growth-oriented and middle market healthcare providers and investors. We're glad to have Ryan joining us today. Today, we're going to be chatting about some of the key drivers in determining which healthcare services companies are best poised to not only weather the COVID-19 storm, but to really come out as strong or stronger than ever. We expect a wide array of impacts from this pandemic, and as private equity investors are making choices about where to invest, considering the determinants of success will be very important. So, we look forward to kicking it off, and Ryan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Amber. Jeff, looking forward to it. You bet. Maybe we could start by exploring some of these factors that will either be creating headwinds or tailwinds or just at least differences. And while we do expect there to be more headwinds than tailwinds, the impact won't be uniform. And one of the things that we've seen and are seeing as states begin to think about opening up is the impact of location, whether you're framing that as kind of red state, blue state, There's no denying that states in the South and some in the West are opening at a faster clip, such that where you're located may impact kind of the speed with which you can come back online. Amber, do you have any other thoughts on kind of where people sit and how that might impact a recovery? No, I agree. But what's interesting about the reopening process is that there were only two states that never put in place a stay-at-home order or an elective procedure mandate, and that is Wyoming and North Dakota. All other of the 48 states put in one or both mandates. What's also interesting, though, is every single one of those 48 states has already started to soften the restrictions. So while they will be going at different paces, certainly, even New York and the upper Northeast that was hardest hit are already starting to loosen the stay-at-home mandates to loosen their elective procedure guidelines. So it is something that is going to be a huge, huge part of determining success is how those procedures are rolled out, how rapidly, et cetera. We also have an interesting perspective given our investment bank is located in Charleston, South Carolina, an area that received an influx of folks fleeing from heavily impacted COVID issues. Uh, So taking into account those factors, as well as the effectiveness of work from home scenarios, the question lies is when those fleeing citizens actually return home. Certainly helpful. There will certainly be some areas that will be winners in coming out of this pandemic. What do you think about sectors that surround telehealth? That would seem like an attractive place to be building in, given the constraints of the shutdown. 
you know, telehealth is a idea or a concept that is not new. Obviously, been pushed to the forefront and a lot of forced adoption across all the healthcare service sectors. It's somewhat disappointing in that it took you know this pandemic to bring that you know to an inflection point. That said, you know, telehealth has this is its moment to prove its efficacy and that it really is a value added service across healthcare services, both on the provider side as well as on the patient and consumer side. It is, in our thought, a necessity for achieving the triple aim. Most of the patients utilizing you know, telehealth today in this you know, COVID era probably gave operators the ability to work through some kinks, but now things should be you know, pretty well tuned. And if it's not, if it's a feckless avenue for delivering care, you know, telehealth will never be the solution that it can. And so I'll get off my soapbox in that, but I really think this is the shining moment. It's disappointing when we talk to providers who say, and they're using products that have been around or providers who have been around for some time, that they've had to switch into you know, Apple utilizing FaceTime or Google Hangouts or things of that nature that are easier for adoption on the other side with the patient. But you know, I really think that this is a time for telehealth to prove its value, and it may not get another opportunity. Hopefully, it will not get another opportunity like today. One of the areas where Ryan. it probably needs to catch up is on the reimbursement. We've talked to a number of providers where even if the telehealth delivery mechanism is effective delivery for the services, it doesn't completely make the provider whole if they're not being reimbursed at anywhere near the same level as if someone showed up in their office. So coordinating both the effective delivery and the effective reimbursement is going to be, both of those are going to be necessary for that to work very well. I agree. I think that's right, Jeff. And there's a lot of other pieces that have to come together. But I think Ryan's comments about this really being the opportunity and everyone very much hoping that it is an opportunity that is seized by the industry, I think that's right. Previously, I think we all know that the use of telehealth was largely between providers, and there was a shocking um, lack of use by basic physician practices as of two years ago when the AMA did their telehealth study, only 15% of physicians were using any form of telehealth product. And those who were, were largely using it to interface with other healthcare providers, not interfacing with their patients. And those who were interfacing with their patients a lot of times it was for that remote patient monitoring that cardiologists and others do, not just for your routine visit. Psychiatrists really have been way ahead of the curve in terms of being able to have that kind of remote interface. So there are specialties that are far out ahead that other specialties can look towards to emulate how to implement those a little bit better. At the same time, Jeff, I agree with your comment about reimbursement needs to catch up. Efficacy also needs to catch up to make sure that the different systems can work together internally, the EHRs and the patient interfacing systems. But then there's going to also be a whole host of fraud and abuse issues that come out of this. And we are already starting to hear from government prosecutors that telehealth abuse 
is very, very high on their list, along with a lot of other COVID-related fraud things. So for those of us who are doing healthcare transactions, and it is not enough to merely look and see, has this provider been effective in being able to implement a telehealth solution, but have they done it appropriately? And Jeff, to your point, are they getting paid on it such that it's a decent revenue replacement? I'd be interested to, and this is the crystal ball that we all need, but, you know, what the regulation, the loosening of those restrictions on a reimbursement perspective, how long those stay. I think for a lion's share of these, especially on the specialty services, that the ability to capture, you know, in parity an audio visit as the same as an in-person visit was pretty valuable to these groups. That is, you know, something that will be tough to to pull back on and just say, well, you know, a video or virtual visit, it will be the same as an in-office visit. When you look at, you know, who's probably using telehealth the most, it's going to be an older population. You know, these older or elder elder demographics don't, I think there's a stat out there that 90% of them have access to a phone, but only, you know, 40 or 50% have access to smartphones. So, you're cutting out the group that would probably be utilizing the audio services the most. And, you know, by cutting or pulling back that regulation will both impact the quality of care provided to those groups as well as, you know, a revenue stream for the provider groups. Amber, maybe a question for you. There's been a lot of discussion about elective surgeries being postponed or not allowed at all. And while most surgeries that are considered elective are not elective in the sense of you might like to have uh, dessert. It's more like an ACL replacement. How would you segment some of the different sectors as it relates to elective procedures coming back online? Because they don't seem to all be quite the same. No, they're not. And a lot of those procedures are preventative in nature. Think about in the GI world, a lot of their procedures are preventative for high-risk populations. And those are ones that quite conceivably can be put off longer because they are not creating pain and discomfort for the patient. And so that's one of the dynamics in GI, although certainly that preventative care is critical for health. So that is one of the hurdles that GI has to overcome. By contrast, you mentioned the ACL, orthopedics is something where a lot of times there is incredible pain and discomfort for the patient, it's limited mobility. So there are the drivers, you know, the patient comfort drivers to overcome that you may not have in GI, but you have a different challenge to overcome, which is that a lot of those elective procedures require a pretty significant out-of-pocket expense for a lot of patients who are using certainly those who are using uh, commercial insurance. And what's really interesting is this dynamic right now where insurance companies have well-publicized in their earnings calls are sitting on a vast amount of cash that is not being paid out to providers because these elective procedures aren't happening. And at the same time, providers want to get those patients moving, start to do those procedures, that ACL repair, and yet the patients have not used in the very ubiquitous high deductible plans 
the patients haven't used their deductibles for the year. And there is very little ability for a provider and insurance company to work together to waive those deductibles. They're pretty hamstrung by IRS regulations. So I think part of what we're going to be seeing is, and certainly in the states that are opening up a little bit later, those elective procedures like the ACLs, while they may be uh, creating that patient discomfort issue, the patient may choose to wait to 2020 when they are going to be able to start really working down their deductible so that they'll be able to get more of their care done in a given year for less out-of-pocket. These are the intricate nuances that are appearing between different types of elective procedures that have different types of impact on the patient from both a comfort and care standpoint, but a financial out-of-their-own-pocket standpoint. And there's other dynamics where, like you said, the ACL, you're still going to get it. It's a question of when, and the when is important, whether you're talking 20 revenue or 2021 revenue. There's also elements of demand that can just be lost. If someone was going to see their dentist twice a year and you ended up with six months where you couldn't go see the dentist, it's not like you're going to go see them twice in the last three months. You're just going to go once. And so a certain kinds of demand can just disappear and not just be pushed forward and squeezed into a different time frame. So there'll be differences in how much recovery is kind of recouping those revenues or whether they're just lost for that period entirely. What's interesting on the dental example that you just gave, and that is absolutely correct, but there are going to be some provider types who are able to very effectively work with insurance companies and get some modifications to the plan made that will allow the care to happen faster. So in your dental example, that's absolutely right. And most dental plans work that you can't get, if you have two times a year hygiene, you can't get them any closer in time than six months. But that is the kind of thing that a provider an insurance company can work together to change because unlike waiving the deductibles, there's more flexibility within the plan document. So I can really envision a situation where a large dental provider or in some cases, again, back in orthopedics, maybe in dermatology, where there is a preventive component that is built in to the plan that patients feel like they've paid for that because even if they can only get, in your dental example, even if they only get one cleaning that year, they've still paid the same out-of-pocket on their premiums that they previously did. So patients really may be willing to get two cleanings in three months so long as their plan is willing to pay for it. And that's where I think there's a real opportunity for smart, creative providers to do some real advocacy. There is. But, you know, the missing element of this that we keep talking about is on the employer side, right? So, you know, employers who are sponsoring these plans, what we're watching and talking with others about is 
will we see, you know, the benefit buy down and benefits that are provided today that won't be provided necessarily in 2021 due to these companies and businesses having to deal with their own cash flow implications? There's definitely an impact on kind of the recovery for these provider businesses where the exact behavior of patients is a little bit unknown. The incentives can sometimes cross or come in different cross currents, and it's unclear exactly how people are going to behave. Amber, to your point, maybe if they feel like they've paid for it, they will kind of accelerate some of the maintenance or preventative visits, or maybe they won't. It'll be very difficult to know until we live through it how patients are going to respond. That's right, and a lot of it depends back to the very first point of geography. We've all seen the different statistics in consumer confidence in different states, the confidence to just go out into the community and consume various resources, go to restaurants, go to the grocery store, et cetera. And you're right, Jeff, that variation in consumer confidence amongst different populations will be a big element of this as well. And it, it remains to be seen. That's why we're having this conversation now in the middle of May speculating a lot about how this may unfold, but these are certainly trends that we and all of our investor clients will certainly be closely watching. We've talked some about location impacting how provider services businesses will rebound. We talked about kind of locations by state, location uh, urban versus rural or suburban. There's also going to be an impact on whether or not services are centered in a hospital. As long as this virus is floating around and the hospital feels like in every community, the at least local epicenter of where that disease is likely residing, I would expect there to be a healthy reluctance for people to not spend any time in the hospital if they can avoid it, which obviously you don't go to the hospital for fun, but there are a lot of services that people have a choice of whether or not they're going to do it, and the fact that the services are provided in a hospital may be problematic for those folks being willing to proceed with those services. In the same, so as, you know, outpatient services kind of pick up on those trends, I think that those same you know, patient psyche aspects are going to be prevalent even in an outpatient setting. So, you know, will we have, you know, waiting rooms that we had, you know, six months ago, or will the triaging process happen, you know, in the parking lot or even before arrival at a location? So, you know, technology, it's, you know, it's making its way. It's not just a provider, provider, patient, provider interactions for care, but also, the patient engagement and keeping what I would refer to as what Amazon is doing in, you know, a vaccinated supply chain. So keeping, you know, all those, both the providers, the clinical staff, and the patients in the safest setting possible. Another area where there can be opportunities coming through this turmoil is in the context of distressed acquisitions. We're already seeing larger provider groups looking at acquiring, in particular, smaller provider groups who had a more difficult time weathering the storms of this pandemic. And real or perceived safety of a larger organization can be very appealing. And we're working with a number of provider businesses in various sectors that have very much flipped the switch on looking at acquisitions, both distressed and otherwise, 
with the recognition that there will be many provider businesses, especially on the smaller end, but also on the larger end, that are needing to be a seller, either a flight to security or in distress. So provider businesses that are well capitalized or have access to capital, whether that's private equity backed or credit facilities with dry powder, a number of those are looking at this as an opportunity to make value investments. If these less sophisticated outfits are going to be having to deal with a lot in the future, and that will be a flight to security, I do think, you know, to our earlier points that there will be a shift to outpatient or less desire to go within a hospital setting that this gives health systems an opportunity maybe to advance their acquisition pipeline. They are, you know, their balance sheets are well capitalized, great, you know, from a credit risk perspective. And also, you know, aren't having to deal quite with other portfolio aspects and dynamics that private equity is having to deal with today. So we may see more acquisitions on health system fronts, or at least earlier, but there is going to be a large flight for these independent physician groups to align with operators of scale. There's another provider type that merges a lot of these concepts together comfortably that I think will be very interesting to watch. It's another kind of segment of providers that could really thrive through this. And those are the providers like veterinary services, behavioral health, psychiatry, psychology. What these provider types do is they combine a lot of the features that we've already discussed in that their services can be largely received at home without having to put oneself in harm's way or else a very minimal trip to the vet to check out your newly adopted puppy in that case, but not an area where there's been a ton of COVID-related exposure. They can be purchased relatively inexpensively, yes, largely out of pocket for the patient slash consumer, but a lot of times the patient consumer is viewing that as a replacement for some other large expense like the vacations that they're no longer taking. And they also have the element of providing that mental health and comfort and security and care, which is getting a lot of attention, obviously, during the COVID pandemic as the great worry about the mental health of our society. So you take a provider in behavioral health, psychiatry, psychology, and veterinary services, maybe some others, Ryan and Jeff, that you can think of, but I think those provider types are very much well poised to be able to kind of meet all of those patient and consumer needs. And if they can add some of these other features along with them that we've talked about with a really effective telehealth product, not just the simplest that don't work with their own systems, that could be a really dynamite combination of factors. Absolutely. And while some consumers will be constricted economically, there's a segment that will be willing to pay up. I think of like concierge medicine, the idea of someone paying a little bit more for those services but not having to interact with people in an office setting, uh, I could see that being very attractive. Other areas where I think there could be fewer headwinds are areas where consumer behavior is less 
a driver of revenue, thinking of like capitated payments where you're, as a provider, you're getting a certain amount per person per month and it's not really determined by the consumer's behavior. Those businesses can be challenged to put together and put together effectively in normal circumstances and that will still be present now. But to the extent that they've been put together in a workable way, they would be more resilient to kind of the current situation because the revenue, whether it's coming from a large employer or the state, the revenues are less fluctuating based on consumer behavior. Yeah. Can we bring up the topic of testing? And, you know, if you are able to layer on, you know, testing either, you know, in home or at home or somehow bring that patient back to you through the testing aspects, I think you will have fully circled today's patient needs. Thanks, Ryan and Amber. This has been super interesting, and we're going to have to kind of live the next several months to see exactly how this will play out. Consumer behavior is going to have a big impact. People's psychology is going to have a big impact, their fears, what motivates them, the incentives, both from the provider side and from the consumer side. There's going to be so many crisscrossing variables that It'll be dizzying, but there will certainly be those that are poised to do well in this or at least survive and flourish at some level, and there's going to be some real challenges along the way. This discussion has been focused, obviously, on healthcare provider services. We recognize that there are a lot of other types of businesses that connect to the healthcare world, whether that's life sciences, product suppliers, non-provider services that support the healthcare business. There's going to be lots of businesses that are going to be eagerly awaiting the renewed health of the healthcare sector, but we're all going to have to stay tuned and see how it plays out. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. This is the third in our series of Across the Table. We'll have more episodes coming along the way, and we hope you'll join us for each of those, and we'll see you soon. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.